What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I have Dr. Anas Alhaji talking about OPEC Plus and the potential of a price war in oil. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast should not be taken as financial advice. Hit that subscribe button. Give me a five-star rating wherever you get podcasts. And big shout-out to my sponsor, Idaho Armored Vaults. Hit up Bob Coleman and his team at goldsilvervault.com, and you can get access to the precious metals at the lowest margin of any single precious metals dealer in the country. All right, enough for me. Let's get into this episode. All right. Well, Dr. Anas, I have your two articles up here. So uh, for those in the crowd who who haven't seen them yet, uh, the first one is titled What to Expect from the OPEC Plus Plus Meeting. Uh, Will oil futures curve shift into backwardation and the rumor mills of of another oil price war? Uh, No, it's far simpler than that. So Dr. Anas, with that being said, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, as many of you know, uh, OPEC Plus will meet virtually on Thursday to decide what to do with its production, at least for the first quarter of 2024, uh, or probably the first half, because their first meeting is going to be in June. So most likely they will set up the stage for uh, the first half. Uh, Just a reminder that last October, uh, OPEC Plus decided on a cut. And if you recall, they cut 2 million barrels a day from the ceiling or from the quota, which means that the actual cut is lower than the ceiling. This has been extended to the end of 2024. So that's already uh, carved or being carved in stone. So there is already a cut for OPEC Plus to the end of 2024. Uh, we wrote a report in December 2022. And in that report, we called on OPEC to cut production. And we mentioned a lot of things about the situation in January 2023 and the first quarter and how prices will decline. And uh, our call was ignored. And by March, OPEC met and decided to do the cut. It was already too late for them because they lost about three months of production cut. And that's why at that time, it was very clear that the smaller members of OPEC, uh, some of them are African countries, were not going to cut. And that's for Saudi Arabia to go for voluntary cuts. The same problems we had in 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 March 2023, the same problems we had are surfacing now. So so those problems that we are seeing today are not new. They are from last March, and they literally prevented OPEC Plus from reaching an agreement uh, at that time. The situation now is, let me cover the issue of price war first. There were rumors uh, that there is disagreement and the Saudis might go for another price war. There is not a single study in the literature uh, that focuses on the oil price war 
and when when the Saudis will resort to uh, that price war, except ours. And the results of that study, basically, we just posted over the weekend, showing the reasons why and why it does not uh, when Saudi Arabia resort to those uh, to those cuts. So if you look at the history of the price wars, we have three events and some people consider a fourth event and I will talk about them. The most famous event uh, of price war was in the mid 80s. In the mid 80s, we had a, a very strange situation and we have some lessons that everyone should learn from. What happened is after the uh, increase in prices in the 70s because of the energy crisis in the United States and the oil embargo and all other things related to it, prices went up. And that was a big mistake. As you recall, from the previous space we had with uh, Green Candle, we talked about the oil weapon and why we are not going to see another oil embargo. And we had a complete discussion of that. One of the problems with the, with the increase in prices in the 70s is that it brought about 5.5 million barrels a day of production from the North Sea and Alaska that was not there before. And they were in full production in the early 80s. And you have this, uh, this in massive increase in supply. And what is unique about this increase in supply is that it is close to the markets. The North Sea is close to the European markets and the Alaska is close to the American markets, unlike the oil coming from the Middle East or from Latin America or other places. So you have increasing supply that is close to the market. So that was a disaster for the Saudis and OPEC members. And as prices started declining in the 80s and OPEC tried to defend prices, there was a big problem. The big problem is OPEC never had a mechanism to defend prices, never did. And what we saw is when President Reagan uh, decided to liberalize energy markets in the United States. He literally threw the ball in open court and told them to deal with it. And they did not know how to deal with it. So that was 1981. It took them more than a year to develop the quota system. So the quota system was implemented in, in 1982, but no one knew what to do with the quota system, how to enforce it, how to divide it. How They have no, no idea. So remember that OPEC was established in 1960, but it never had any quota system until 1982. And it, it did that by default simply because the oil market was managed by the U.S. government and it just threw the ball in their court and they had a serious problem because several members refused to cut. And prices started declining. The Saudis started cutting. The Saudis were producing 10 million barrels a day. They kept cutting until their, their production reached only 2 million. So you have 80% decrease in production, 80% from 10 million to 2 million, yet prices continue to decline. 
So there is the lesson here. The lesson is we had the Iraq-Iran war at that time. We had mines all over the Hormuz Strait and all the Gulf. And we had U.S. ships escorting Kuwaiti ships, basically Kuwaiti tankers, to leave the Hormuz Strait. So in terms of political issues, we had some really big issues. We have a major war where the two countries are destroying the oil infrastructure of each other. And we had mines all over the Hormuz Strait. And yet prices continued to decline. So for those who get surprised that we have a political problem somewhere and oil prices did not go up, remember what happened in the 80s. We had major war. We had major problems with the Hormuz Strait, and yet prices continued to decline. Why? Because the supply was very large at a time when the demand, listen to this, declined by 7 million barrels a day. So you have Alaska and North Sea bringing 5.5 million barrels a day. Demand declined by 7.5 million, uh, most of it because of a major change in the market against oil. We started using nuclear. We started using coal because the, the power sector throughout the world was dependent on oil. All right now, search for it. The United States' dependence on oil right now in the power sector is like 0.05%. It's less than 1%. And that's the case in Europe. That's the case in, in many countries around the world where they shifted completely uh, uh, the power sector to other sources. So there were major losses. When OPEC members refused to cooperate, the Saudis decided to go for uh, a price war. They resorted to everything possible at that time. So it took them two years of negotiations, and they failed. Finally, they decided to crash the market. They increased production from 2 million barrels to 4 million barrels, and the market crashed. So that was a major price war at that time that then some OPEC members basically tried to uh, understand what's going on and how to implement the quota system, etc. But the surplus was huge, and uh, some OPEC members were not willing to cooperate. And it just happened that the main country that was not cooperating was Nigeria, which the same country that we have problem now uh, uh, in recent days. So that was the first case. The first case is there was a major surplus in the market because of a massive demand decline and a massive increase in production. A change of 1 million and 2 million is not a big deal and will not lead to a price war. And as we moved in, we had the other price war of 2015. In 2015, we had similar cases to the middle of the 80s. We had a major increase in production, especially from uh, uh, from shale. At the same time, we have oil consumption. It did not, uh, or the oil demand did not decline like in the 80s. But if you look at it as uh, the growth was like after 2010, after the recovery from the financial crisis, oil demand was growing at like 1.5, 1.6 million barrels a day uh, every year. And here we had 2014 
where it declined to about 700,000 only, so about half, at a time when we have major uh, increases uh, in production, uh, global output in only 2014 and 2015, only in those two years, global output increased by more than 5 million barrels a day. So you have this massive increase, demand growth was limited, we ended up with a massive surplus, and the Saudis decided to go for a price war simply because others did not cooperate too. So you have two issues here. You have massive surplus and, and other members are not willing to cooperate. Here, I would like to clarify a very important point because I've seen even experts with big names falling into this mistake. The Saudi reaction in 2015 was not about shale oil. Please pay attention to this. It wasn't about shale oil. It wasn't about the U.S. oil per se. And the reason why, because we had an export ban since 1974 on U.S. produced crude. And the Obama administration did not lift the ban until the end of 2015. So it cannot be that U.S. crude going to the international market that's been angering the Saudis until they do that. There were other reasons for that. So it wasn't U.S. crude. So what happened during that period is with the share revolution, the share revolution under the price, under the uh, export ban, uh, we had a major issue because you cannot export that oil. So the price differentials between Brent and WTI increased substantially and exceeded $20 at, at some point. So imagine today, for example, that Brent is at 80 and WTI is at 60. That's what we had at that time because we were not able to export it. That's why there was a lot of pressure from the oil industry on the Obama-Biden administration at that time to allow U.S. exports. And we were hitting a refining wall at that time. So we're very close to hitting a refining wall. And where that oil is going to be? Where is it going to go? Since it cannot be exported, and if we hit a refining wall, then we are, we are going to end up with shut-ins. So the Obama administration allowed U.S. produced oil to be uh, to be exported, but that's after 2015. So it has nothing to do with the crash of 2015, as some people are saying. There were other issues. We had a major increase in Iraq oil production. That's an OPEC member. We had a recovery in Libya. That's an OPEC member. Because of the uh, Obama-Jacoba uh, deal with Iran, that's the nuclear deal, Iranian crude was increasing. That was a major problem. And Russia's production was increasing too. So shale was not on the mind of the Saudis at that time. It was all the others. And if you look at the increases they had, was very large. But when it comes to shale, there were other things that worried the Saudis. And we discussed this, I think, several months ago, probably a year ago, in details. I'm not going to go into it, but I just want to mention it, that uh, it was a strategic decision by the Saudis and other OPEC members 
to, fo to focus on refining so they can benefit from the value added. So they built those mega refineries that cost several billion dollars. And by the time they are done, what U.S. refiners did, because U.S. oil was stranded before 2015, between 2010 and 2015. The only way basically to export it is in the form of products. So U.S. refiners had a feast on a cheap oil at that time, again, $20 difference, and they were exporting products all over the world, and they were competing with Saudi Arabia and everyone else. So by the time that strategic goal of Saudi Arabia and other OPEC members to export products, all of a sudden the share revolution led to massive increase in U.S. exports of products and competed with that. So that was a big hit to the uh, strategic plans of Saudi Arabia and others. And the other one was related to NGOs. The, since NGOs are not part of the OPEC quota, OPEC quota is only about crude and it is 50 API and lower, in some cases 45 API and lower. So anything, anything related to NGOs and condensates is not counted. So since NGOs are not part of the quota, uh, several uh, OPEC members focused on NGLs because they can make money since there is a big market for it in Asia uh, with a good margin and it's not subject to OPEC quota. So everyone was focusing on NGLs. And what the share revolution did? The share revolution brought in massive amount of NGLs. And if you look at NGLs exports, I think the increase was like uh, within several years, I think seven years we had like a 20 fold increase in NGLs exports to the extent that the Saudis used to set the price for NGLs in Latin America. They lost the market and the ability to set prices. So part of the Saudi reaction for the price war in 2015 was shale, but it wasn't oil. It was everything else. Again, we see the same issue that we've seen in the mid 80s. The surplus was a huge and some countries were not cooperating. The third time was on March 6, 2020. This is just before the lockdowns of Corona and everything else. But you can see it at that time throughout the world. You go to airports where people start covering their faces, etc., which was a very strange scene for m many of us. What happened with the Russians, basically, is summed up by what uh, uh, Prince Abdelaziz bin Salman, who is the Saudi energy minister, mentioned at an I, uh, IEF meeting in Riyadh uh, in February 2020. I think he summed it up beautifully when he said, here is our problem with the Russians. The house is on fire. The Russians want to bring the garden hose while we are supposed to call the fire department. That's, that's his words. It's the garden hose versus the fire department. And the Russians at that time really were kind of living in a cocoon, just kind of like in their ivory tower, did not know what's going on around the world. And they wanted to have a small cut while the Saudis wanted a very large cut. And the Saudis can see it. They can see what's happening in China. They can see what, what might happen in Europe and the United States. So they wanted a larger cut, of course, not as large as they did 
later on when they decided to cut 9.7 million barrels a day, but they were really looking for a higher cut. The Russians refused. Why did the Russians refuse? The Russians were obsessed with the idea that we should curtail shale production. And for those who attended our previous spaces, heard this story, I will repeat it for, for those who attend for the first time. It is very clear right now that since 2014, it was clear to Putin and his administration that the Saudis are after the Russian gas in Europe. And we do have enough evidence now to show that whether you want to talk about uh, secret and intelligence uh, uh, gathering, etc., or about some public statements that what we saw in Europe about the gas market and the fight over the gas market in Europe is really planned long ago. I'm not talking about conspiracy theory. I am talking about world dominance. I am talking about uh, using energy to dominate. And it is very clear that this war or the Cold War did not really end as some people expected, and after uh, Putin uh, annexed Crimea uh, and the imposition of sanctions on him, he realized through intelligence gathering and some other public statements that the U.S. is going to focus on natural gas, the U.S. is going to focus on LNG as a strategic choice, and they are after his gas in Europe. And that's what happened. The U.S. basically uh, uh, built uh, a large number of terminals and the capacity went from zero to 13 BCF a day. And it was a great opportunity for the Biden administration to use the Ukraine invasion to market that gas. Now, notice here what's strange about this. The, 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 chief, the, the chief marketer of LNG was President Trump. Every time he went to Europe, he championed U.S. LNG. And then we have changed a regime in the United States from the far right to the far left. And yet they still have the, exactly the same policy. Exactly the same policy. And that tells you that the deep state in the United States basically is really using LNG as a strategic, uh, as a strategic tool and it is now part of U.S. foreign policy. It is part of the U.S. national security. And environmentalists who are fighting LNG, environmentalists who are fighting the building of new plants, must understand that they will be ignored simply because the ex exports of LNG right now are part of the U.S. national security. And they are not going to win this fight. So Putin realized long ago that this shale, and I'm talking about oil in particular, and I'm talking about the Permian here, that unlike conventional oil, it comes with a lot of gas. So if, if oil prices go up and U.S. production, U.S. oil production increases, it's going to bring a lot of gas. And if it brings a lot of gas, then the U.S. can export a lot of cheap LNG. And they are going to take market share from him. So if you look at what Russia has been doing since 2015 until now, their position is very clear. We want prices low enough to curb shale. 
So the Saudis themselves are not against shale. It's that the Russians who are against shale. Why? Because it hit them really hard in Europe and took with their market share. They knew this. So for the Russians, as long as they as long as they can keep oil prices around 60 or 65, and that's their position with the Saudis, that we want to keep prices between 60 and 65, so shale won't grow much, so it won't bring a lot of gas, and then those LNG projects won't be built. But we know what happened. Prices went up, and U.S. Uh, production increased. Uh, we had it at 13 million barrels in August, which is record high, and brought in massive amount of gas to the extent that U.S. natural gas being sold at negative prices at some hubs, and natural gas prices remain low, despite the fact that Europe and China paid record prices for gas last year. So the idea here is the dispute between Russia and Saudi Arabia that the Russians are worried about gas, Saudis do not have gas to export, and therefore their focus was about oil and oil prices, while the Russians basically were worried because higher oil prices uh, hit their natural gas. So in March 2020, when they had this dispute with Saudi Arabia and they just wanted uh, uh, a smaller cut, simply because they don't want more LNG in Europe. They really wanted to curb U.S. exports to Europe. They don't want to see what, we, what already happened now, what we see it now. So that's why they took a hard stance against the Saudis in 2020, and the Saudis hit them hard. Because the Saudis, what they did on uh, March 7th is immediately they announced a major discount to the Aramco OSP, that the official uh, uh, selling price, uh, by about $10.50. So it's just imagine, you wake up in the morning and they re just reduced the price by 10, more than $10. And then they decided to increase their supply to 12 million barrels a day. And the market crashed. So the price war was very clear that we have a major dispute and a major surplus coming. And just a month later, President Trump asked both nations to cooperate. We ended up with a 10 million barrel um, a day cut. And then uh, Mexico reneged on their commitment. Uh, so it declined, the total declined to 9.7 million barrels a day. The fourth incident, according to some, and that's why I did not include this one in the main uh, article that we posted over the weekend, is the 1998-1999 uh, 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 oil crisis at that time. The market collapsed, and there were many reasons for the collapse, but some experts insist on the idea that it was the result of a price war, especially who are friends with Minister Naimi at that time, uh, because he told them that. Uh, and I heard that from them directly, that he told them that we did increase production simply to hit Venezuela, because Venezuela was cra going crazy on privatization and allowing foreign companies to come in, and uh, their production increased substantially, and they refused to cut. Uh, we had the Asian financial crisis. We had a warm winter at that time. Uh, President Clinton allowed Alaska oil to go to Asia at that time. So there was a lot of competition in Asia. So we had all kinds of things happening at that time. 
But Noemi insists that when they decided to increase production by 2 million barrels a day, that's for the whole of OPEC in 1997, was really to force Venezuela to, um, uh, to stop what they were doing. Uh, and uh, the, the problem is when you do the analysis, you'll see that there were many reasons for that. I don't think at all that Noemi expected prices to go to $9. Uh, simply because he did not expect that the aging crisis will happen. Uh, so the, the story kind of is still questionable. Uh, but some people consider that as a price war. And if you look at the numbers, it supports the other events that the surplus was huge. And uh, just like 2015 and, two, and, and the mid-80s, it took a long time to recover. So one of the lessons we learned from the price wars is that uh, it takes long time to recover. Uh, the recovery in after 2020 simply was because of the major cuts. I mean, imagine cutting 9.7 million. But uh, without that, it takes long time for prices to uh, to recover. As of now, we don't have any of the conditions that happened before. So the surplus is limited. Is uh, the surplus is small. And uh, the problems that exist with other nations, uh, there is no problem with Russia, by the way. Uh, uh, UAE has no choice but to comply uh, simply for several reasons, of course. Uh, we've been hearing about the UAE since uh, 2021 that their capacity is, is way higher than their production. They wanted higher production. They already got a concession from Saudi Arabia that they can produce more next year. Um, but now uh, they are in bind in a sense because we have COP28 uh, is going to be uh, is going to open in a few days. Uh, what uh, I think after tomorrow, uh, and they wanted all the support they can, and they cannot go to COP28 uh, while they are asking OPEC to increase uh, uh, to increase their share of oil production because they've been trying to show since the beginning of the year that they are really green, they are uh, uh, fighting climate change, and now they are going to go public and say, I want to, in to increase my oil production. As a result, of course, emissions will increase. So I think because of COP28, the UAE has no choice but to comply with any cuts that they agree on on Thursday. As for Angola and Nigeria, the dispute is over uh, the production. If you look at the numbers, Nigeria and Angola plan to increase their production next year. And with the cut and the way they set the quota, uh, uh, their plans basically are higher than the quota and they wanted to change the baseline so they can produce more. So they feel that uh, the choice of the uh, uh, baseline was at a certain period of time when they were suffering and therefore it, that, that should change. I think one of the main objectives of Saudi Arabia is OPEC plus unity, and they need to show that. And part of their leadership uh, is to show a unity. So they are willing to cooperate with Nigeria and Angola and, and manufacture some sort of a formula just to get, to get their agreement. And the reason why, because OPEC and OPEC plus all their agreements, has to. they have to have consensus to have an agreement. 
If one country rejected the agreement, they cannot have an agreement. That's what happened in March. That's why they resorted to the voluntary, to the voluntary cuts. A couple of things here before I go to the scenarios. Uh, one of them uh, that, as you know, the meeting was delayed. What's in the media basically is that the meeting was delayed because of the um, those disagreement among OPEC members, and there is this they need to resolve them, and there is no time. Yes, that's true, and that's believable. But there are other reasons too. Think about it this way: the ceasefire in Gaza that we saw in recent days. If OPEC met a week earlier or two weeks earlier and they decided to cut, you are going to see the Western media all over the place basically accusing the Saudis and others of using oil as a weapon to support people in Gaza. And they are punishing the United States and the Europeans for supporting Israel. So if you, are, if you have a meeting on Sunday and you know there is a ceasefire, that ceasefire is going to last for several days and could be extended, why you don't wait until the end of the week? If you decide to cut, it will not be associated with the idea of the oil weapon. And it has nothing to do with politics in the first place. So I think that they played that in a very smart way uh, by delaying it. So any any production cut will not be associated with the, with the Gaza uh, situation. And uh, the other issues, of course, related to this, that uh, as, as some of you know, I was in Saudi Arabia for about three weeks. And I can tell you, Riyadh was, uh, I mean, summit after summit, meeting after meeting, uh, uh, all kinds of people coming from all around the world, the presidents, kings, etc. they were super busy. And think about it this way. The, the energy ministry was involved in all those events. Prices were around $85 to $90. And probably they were thinking, look, we are going to go to OPEC meeting in, in November. It's a very easy meeting. Prices are high. All we got to do is just extend the voluntary cuts and we are fine. And they were busy with everything else. They were talking about energy poverty. They were talking about uh, cooperation with African countries, cooperation with Caribbean countries, investing in the energy infrastructure of Africa, uh, working with India, investing in China. That, that's all the conferences were about. And all of a sudden, just a week before the meeting, prices plummeted by $10. And now everyone is running, trying to negotiate and try to reach an agreement. There was no time. So the meeting was delayed. And the idea that it became virtual, so we have a delay and became virtual, I think there are some roots to, uh, to, to the issue here. Uh, first, first of all, uh, the day on Thursday when they meet, at the same day of the opening of COP28, and almost all those ministers are involved in it. So why fly all the way to Vienna and then fly back to Dubai at the same time? Just do it virtual and go to Dubai. So that makes sense. But uh, I suspect there is something else. I don't have enough evidence on this, but I suspect that there is a problem with Vienna itself. And the reason why, because they had the OPEC seminar uh, a couple of months ago, and the uh, Austrian foreign minister was supposed to come, and, to come and give the opening speech. And 
he did not show up. He apologized, but he criticized OPEC. So that was a major issue. And then Austria supported Israel against the, what uh, uh, that's how it's perceived in the Arab world, against the uh, Palestinians. And then the city of Vienna itself banned any demonstrations in support of Israel. And uh, according to some that they, ba they banned Palestinian flags. So if you are an Arab, do you go to Vienna with this atmosphere? Do you go to Vienna and all the politicians and all the leaders of the city are against your people? So I think having it virtual while the justification of the uh, Dubai uh, Cup 28, et cetera, is there, I think the, the Vienna issues are going to appear again and probably we'll hear about them again. Now to the scenarios, and I will end with that quickly. Um, just about uh, before the delay of the meeting, our view was there will be no agreement among OPEC Plus on any cuts. Because if they had the agreement, if they had the meeting on Sunday as they decided, uh, several countries will not agree to it, and therefore there will be no agreement on the cut. And our main scenario at that time was Saudi Arabia and Russia and their allies will go for voluntary cuts and they will extend the current cuts that expires at the end of the year. They will expand them to the first quarter of next year or, the, or at least January. That was the main scenario until the meeting got delayed. When the meeting got delayed, that changed the whole thing. So now we have three scenarios. The first scenario is to go for a cut. And uh, please pay attention to the details here. What, the, what will happen on Thursday, according to the scenario, is the following. OPEC Plus already has a cut from October 2022 that extends until the, until the end of 2024. Now they will go for additional cut as an organization. They will go for additional cut. And whatever that cut is, whether a million or, or less or more, that will come from the organization. Whether for the first quarter or to the end of the year, we will see. But we will end up with additional cuts from OPEC Plus, and then Saudi Arabia and Russia and their allies will extend the existing voluntary cuts to January or the first quarter. And on top of that, the Saudis will cut additional amount voluntarily for January. So that's the scenario, what we call scenario one. And for those who wants to read it, it is available on our Substack, and there is no paywall, so it's, a, it's a free. The idea here is very simple. Before the change in the shape of the curve today, Saudi Arabia can control the market and be in the driver's seat only if the whole forward curve is in steep backwardation, including the prompt month and the following month, especially the first month. They, they need that steepness in the curve because that can affect inventories big time, that can affect hedging, that can affect other things, etc. So the Saudis benefit from the steep backwardation. So what they need to get the steep backwardation, that's scenario one. 
which is cu uh, cutting additional production for OPEC, extending the voluntary cuts, and then adding additional voluntary cuts from Saudi Arabia for January. This way you can get that steepness. So prices will go up as a result and you end up with the whole curve, uh, including the prompt month in backwardation. Uh, again, today the shape changed a little bit, but uh, last week we had the first two months in contango. The second scenario, which is the scenario we had before, before the uh, Sunday delay, which is just extend the voluntary cuts. So keep everything the same, no cuts from OPEC, no additional cuts from OPEC plus, but just extend the voluntary cuts to the January or first quarter. And uh, the third, uh, the third scenario basically is uh, just end everything by the end of December, no cuts and no extension. Uh, now we favor the first one. It looks like uh, the uh, the meeting is going to be short. Uh, again, it's going to be virtual. It's going to be short, and they will go for some sort of a cut, uh, whether for the whole OPEC or for the voluntary cuts. Again, the whole issue here is if Saudi Arabia does not succeed in flipping the whole curve into steep backwardation, then they will keep suffering from lower prices and speculators playing the market. So they need to switch it completely to, uh, uh, to backwardation. One of the issues that we got to pay attention to now, and many of you heard me talking about this before, how will China react to that? Let's say if prices go up by seven, eight, ten dollars, China is already withdrawing oil from the from their inventories. And as I mentioned before, the withdrawal of the Chinese from their inventories is different from anyone else because they intend to lower prices or prevent prices from going up. And what we've seen recently, and this is one of the reasons why our forecast for the fourth quarter failed miserably along with everyone else because we never expected that in the fourth quarter we will see a major build in inventories in china india and japan that was completely out of the picture only in the case of low economic growth or recession so literally now we are talking about a case of between recession and low economic growth uh, which was not our main scenario for the first, for the fourth quarter. But now, if oil prices go up next week as a result of scenario one, we will see China withdrawing more from inventories, trying to quell the increase uh, in oil prices. We will see Indian officials yelling and screaming uh, as they did before. Uh, talking about fairness, etc. This is not fair. This is this, 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 and um, uh, the n the reply to them is very simple: uh, You are buying the cheap Russian oil, at least historically, and uh, get the cheap Iranian oil. Now get the Venezuelan, the cheap Venezuelan oil too, if you are worried about uh, about prices. Uh, but the bottom line here is we will see a major reduction in Chinese invent in Chinese oil inventories if prices increase toward $90. And we should look at this as a bearish sign because they really wanted to prevent prices from going up, and that's by design. 
With that, Brandon, I uh, welcome any uh, questions and comments. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that, Dr. Anas. I will let people up one by one, but first I want to give David a chance to ask a question if he's got one. If not, I think Jim was the first up waiting. So I think Jim has been waiting a long time, and I, I, I do want to hear what Jim has to say. I could always be uh, be saved for last, and there's many speakers that want to come up. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Anas, for that wonderful, uh, wonderful discussion there. May, may I have a request, please? Absolutely. Can, can we take questions first and delay the comments? Sure. Thanks. All right. Uh, Jim, what you got for us? Hello, doctor. Good evening. Um, could I please ask your uh, opinion, price opinion on natural gas? Which country? <laughs> the United States. Uh, New York natural gas. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I don't know about the city gate because that can go crazy, but let's talk about Henry Hub. Uh, I think all indications point out to, uh, you know, prices will be suppressed for a long time. Uh, we went through phases with this. Our initial uh, phase was, and, and this was written in like 2014, uh, that once um, LNG exports exceeds eight uh, BCF a day. We will see a spike in prices. Uh, that happened, but production continued to increase from associated gas. After that, we've seen the decline even with the Russian-Ukraine crisis, and now we are into a completely different phase, uh, where the possibility of decline in prices in the United States are always higher than the possibility of increase, simply because any problems in the international market that will limit US LNG exports means that it will back out uh, US gas. So any we did not have this type of volatility before because we did not export LNG. So the problem now, any any problems any slow economic growth in China and Europe or any other problems that will lead to lower U.S. exports is going to hit U.S. natural gas prices really hard. Uh, on the other side, as oil prices increase, uh, and again, according to that scenario one I've been talking about, we will see companies dumping gas on the market, uh, the associated gas at any price. We've seen this so many times in the past. And we've seen it in Waha and other places where gas is sold at negative prices as a result, simply because uh, oil prices are high. Uh, so uh, I'm sorry, I don't have very good news for you. All right, great question there, Jim. Do you, uh, I believe Elliot was next. Elliot, welcome to the stage. What you got for us? Oh, sorry about that. I was just away from the mic there. Uh, yeah, I you kind of hit on it. I was just, uh, was going to ask about the uh, the uh, Nord Stream and how you think that's going to change anything. What is this? Sorry, you were cut off. 
Yeah, no, I was just going to ask you about Nord Stream and, and how initially that was affecting U.S. prices. Now, do you think uh, anything will change? Like Germany is going to, obviously, if it's a cold winter, um, I'm just wondering what you'll think that'll do to U.S. prices. Uh, first of all, I would like to refer you to uh, an article, uh, a report that we published on Europe. Uh, we have uh, what we call the um, uh, natural gas uh, EU natural gas tracker. We publish this once a month. Uh, and if you send me a message via Twitter, I'll be happy to email you the li the latest one that we posted, so you can get away, you get around the paywall. Uh, but if you look at the numbers. Uh, the Europeans were super lucky last year by having a mild winter. And they might end up an, uh, super lucky this year by having a mild winter. Uh, the, the story itself that people brag about, the amount is small. So if you have a couple of uh, cold snaps, that will consume all the storage and then they have to depend more on imports. What people are not paying attention to that while some European politicians are bragging about reducing their imports from Russia, gas imports, they mean piped gas. They are importing more LNG from Russia than before. And uh, simply because all the fixation historically was about the pipelines, that continued, but the Europeans are importing more Russian LNG. And uh, every time we have a kind of a cold snap, uh, we've seen increase in Gazprom exports to Europe. Uh, and now, uh, this, uh, today, this evening, we published a report on how Russia is exporting uh, gas through Turkey to Europe. And the, the whole report basically is about Turkey being a gas hub, uh, but it has some charts that could be useful to you to look how the Russians are playing around to send more gas to uh, to Europe. So Europe is lucky because of the mild winters. In case of a cold winter or super cold winter, uh, they are in deep trouble uh, uh, unless they import more gas and especially more LNG from Russia. Thank you. All right, great question, Elliot. Um, I believe it was uh, JN is next. JN, welcome to the stage. What you got for us? JN, you there? Hello? I'll give you. Yeah. Hi, sorry about that. So my question was just more medium term to long term. Um, if you look at the history of OPEC plus, or if you if you even go further back to Seven Sisters, you know there, there are periods of oil price stability relative to boom and bust periods. And um, I was just curious, Doctor Anas, as to what your view is. You know, for the next couple of years, are are we in a period where OPEC plus has um, you know, just more leverage to be able to stabilize the price relatively compared to prior boom-bust periods. Um, hopefully that makes sense. Thanks very much. Thank you. 
this morning we reposted just because we are before the OPEC plus meeting, we reposted an old article on market management. Uh, so it is on Substack if you'd like to check it out. And uh, in that article, basically, the argument is very clear, uh, is exactly what you said. Uh, the oil market needs management. And by the way, when it comes to uh, economics and policy, I am more libertarian than anything else. Yet, I believe that when it comes to natural resources, the nature of the industries of natural resources requires you to manage them. Uh, and for the oil market, if you look at the the whole history of the industry for about 160 years, uh, what you find out is, like you said, we have lower volatility during periods, uh, lower volatility and long-term stability during periods of management and extreme volatility when the market is not managed. Uh, the problem is OPEC and OPEC Plus are completely different from everything we've seen before. They, are, they have the least control among all the managers in the past. They have less control than Standard Oil, uh, the John Rockefeller Standard Oil. They have less control than the uh, Texas Railroad Commission or the Oklahoma Commission. Uh, and remember that the governor of Oklahoma and the governor of Texas used the National Guard to enable the Texas Railroad, the Texas Railroad Commission to control the fields so the government can control production. So literally, they used armed guard to control it. So it takes that much for control. OPEC does not have any of that. And then you move to the Seven Sisters. The Seven Sisters literally controlled everything from exploration all the way to the pump. OPEC controls only their own crude production, and yet they have problems. We already talked about the problems with Nigeria and uh, uh, and Angola. Uh, so they, they have the least control. Uh, in addition, uh, today, every Tuesday, I have a column in, in, uh, in, the, in the Independent, the Arabic version of the Independent, uh, which was published today. And today's column got some really good response because the column focused on the idea that you need to revamp OPEC Plus, change the whole structure of OPEC Plus and its role. Otherwise, you are going to have some serious problems in the coming years. So you ask about two years from now, whatever OPEC problems we had in the last 40 years, they will be, report, uh, will be repeated in the next 40 years. So they need to revamp the whole issue. They need a new OPEC or a new OPEC plus, completely different from the past. And uh, some of the suggestions, of course, I worked out on a, a very large piece of research uh, that focuses on the idea that you need to, first of all, get rid of the idea of crude. You need to get rid of the idea of production. You need to focus on exports of oil in general. So all, not only crude, you cover all oil and you focus on exports, you don't focus on, uh, on production. And then you need to create formulas for the, to avoid problems with the countries that export gas. And this is a new trend. Whatever happened with Russia and the US, the story that I mentioned is going to happen right now with Algeria, is going to happen with Libya, is going to happen with Nigeria. And all of those are OPEC members.
So they really need to restructure the whole organization. At the same time, they need to create storage facilities. They don't. They don't have a punishment mechanism. That's what we were talking about price war because only Saudi Arabia can act on its own and the, the organization itself cannot punish uh, members. So they need to create a storage system where they can absorb the surplus and manage it. Uh, one of the ideas basically is you have uh, a surplus of refining capacity as some OPEC members while other members that are ex uh, exporting more crude than their quota, they don't have enough refining capacity. So can you work out the system between those so you can have more control in the market? Uh, so I am not optimistic at all about the ability of OPEC Plus to do much over time because of all those complex issues. Back to you. Really appreciate that answer. If I could just have one follow up, if you were to look, sure. um, if I were to ask you, what was what do you see as the biggest threat in the next couple of years to the price stability? Is it offshore development outside of Guyana? Is it technological improvements in U.S. shale? Um, continuing on and on and on. Um, just was curious on your view on that. Thanks very much. I don't think any of that you mentioned are uh, threats. Uh, uh, and I said, uh, even offshore uh, production, I think it will bring more stability. Uh, technological issues, it takes like 30 to 40 years for technology to have an impact. Uh, I think, and I still hold this view for a long time, the biggest threat to the stability of the oil market are government policies, where you have some extremist politicians basically um, uh, adopting policies that cause major problems in the market. And that's what we are seeing. I mean, you look at Europe and the energy crisis in Europe, mostly was the result of policies. It wasn't the result of uh, other things. But yeah, you can blame some on Ukraine, but most of it are really related to government policy. You look at the United States and, and you, you, you can see that it is really politicians who are the biggest threat uh, to any industry, not only the oil and gas industry. So if there is any threat, basically, it will come from those politicians. Back to you. Thanks very much. I uh, always appreciate, appreciate listening to your views. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that, JN. Great question. Uh, I believe Jad was next. Jad, welcome to the stage. Hi, welcome. Uh, first, I would like to uh, greet Dr. Anas uh, I'm your buddy from Sahel Canada, and I will try to be brief. So uh, I look usually to oil market from the eyes of a trader, uh, mostly on the short term. And uh, you have highlighted a point rarely we see anybody talk about, which is the uh, backwardation, uh, the uh, uh, curve of oil futures and pricing in contango. So uh, I will try to formulate my question. Usually most of the people look at oil market in, in terms of supply and demand. I look at it from three different uh, corners, from supply and demand on the oil itself, uh, inflation expectations, which is technically supply and demand on currency itself, on M2, on money supply. And the third one, the manipulation happening in Chicago Mercantile Exchange. 
specifically futures on oil. And why I'm asking this, because the incident happened on April 2020 when oil plummeted to zero. Futures were selling for negative $40 just a few hours before expiration. And that was a, some sort of a squeeze of a short squeeze, or let's say a liquidity squeeze on the contracts itself. And you were one of the very few people to highlight that uh, corner in terms of pricing futures on oil. So uh, I would like to ask you to elaborate more on the pricing in Contango and the backwardation and the uh, curve of oil. Uh, as much as you give me information, I'll be so glad to, to listen to you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Uh, going back to the negative prices, of course, we had the price collapse on uh, March 7th and 8th that week because of the uh, price war. And later on, of course, we have the April 20th. The April 20th basically is really related to the legal issues related to the contract. Uh, it did not happen to Brent. It happened to the WTI because with Brent, if you don't want to take a delivery, and you just let it expire, you just walk away and let it expire. For WTI, basically, you have to take the delivery. You have to take it. And some groups decided to take the delivery based on uh, some stories I heard, basically, that some young men uh, flew uh, uh, some drones over Cushing, and they saw that there are uh, many storage facilities that are empty, and they thought, well, you know, the price today is $12. It's going to expire in 24 hours. And the price after that is $22. I can make $10. Just make it roll. And I can take the delivery and sell the oil at 22 What those, and excuse my language here, what those idiots, the Wall Street idiots did not realize was that that storage was already spoken for. So when they took the delivery and they tried to store that oil, no one basically gave them that storage because it was spoken for and they got stuck. And, and, and that led to the negative, uh, negative prices. It has nothing to do with OPEC, nothing to do with Saudi Arabia or anything else. Uh, but to go back to the issue of backwardation, when we, the oil market, and as we stated this in the article, again, those articles are available free. Market structure becomes extremely important. When we talk about market structure, I'm not talking about the forward structure. I am talking about whether the market is in competition or monopoly or oligopoly or any other form. The oil market is in a situation that is completely different from the past. We already know that the oil market been in oligopoly for a very long time. And you add to it government regulations and taxation and everything else, and you know that there is no way this market is competitive. And that's why when you see some people on Twitter or other places asking for a competitive market, you immediately know they know nothing. Because with all the regulations, one of them, uh, <clears throat> the oil industry is regulated more than most industries. So you cannot say it's competitive. You add to it the oligopoly, you know it's not competitive. And for an oligopolist like Saudi Arabia, they can have more control with the existence of futures market because historically, before 1981, we did not have a futures market. So the game was completely different. But with the futures market, the only way, and this brings us to 
uh, to, uh, I think, the question by Jim. Um, the only way you can affect the physical market and the sentiment of the futures is literally to cut production and change the curve to complete backwardation. That's the only way you can affect the sentiment. And by the way, I strongly believe that the Saudis are looking at two things at the same time. They are looking at the market fundamentals and they have a contract or more than one contract with AI companies to measure sentiment on the spot. So the, on daily basis or probably on hourly basis, they are getting the measurements of various uh, the, uh, sentiment in various markets. So they are looking at that. And therefore, the issue of the backwardation becomes more important now with AI because they really want to affect the sentiment too, not only the, uh, the fiscal market. Back to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, take the next one. I'm good. And I will listen to this on the recording. All right. Great question there, Jed. And B, you're welcome to the stage. Uh, thank you. Um, can you hear me? Oh, yep, perfect. we can hear you. Um, I just wanted to ask a question. I know right now the situation between Israel and Palestine, there's a temporary ceasefire going on. But after that, if the situation escalates, do you see um, the Saudis... Um, doing oil embargo like they did in 1973 uh, to Israel? Or do you think that is completely off the table? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we had uh, a lengthy article on this on Substack. And uh, Brandon and I and David, we had a space uh, at the beginning of the crisis that talks about this in details. So that space is available, I think, uh, on YouTube right now. Uh, probably uh, Brandon can put it up so you can uh, get the link for that, uh, because it was like almost one hour and a half uh, explanation. Uh, but uh, uh, to say it in a few words, the answer is no. Don't expect any reaction or any use of the oil weapon because of Gaza, not only because the Saudis do not agree with Hamas and they are against Hamas. Uh, the, the reason why, because the previous uses of the oil weapon, all of them backfired and backfired big time. And the losses from them were huge. So they learned their lesson that oil is not intended to be a weapon. I know that some uh, Arabs, some Palestinians, some Jordanians and others in the Arab world uh, been calling for you to why uh, the Gulf nations are not doing this and this. They really need to 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 study the history of the oil weapon and and read what we wrote about this so they can realize the damage that the oil weapon did to the Arab world, to the reputation of the Arabs, to the losses. The financial losses were huge. Uh, if you look at what happened in the 80s, uh, uh, all the all the embargo did basically. Uh, is uh, I think we said this in the uh, in that space. The embargo was literally a cover up for all the mistakes of the Nixon administration. 
And if you go back to what we wrote and you look at all the evidence, the energy crisis in the United States started in 1969. It escalated in 1972 and 1973. Most of the gas lines that you see in the uh, in, in the various uh, newspapers around the world, uh, and they show you a gas line or no gas, etc. Most of those pictures did not happen after the embargo. We have a record of each, and you can see it. Some of the some of the most famous pictures that the current media is posting as gas lines because of the embargo, they were from June 1973, and the embargo happened in October. So there was a huge uh, problem. The schools were closed because lack of fuel even before the embargo. And it was an energy crisis. It wasn't oil crisis. And if it's about OPEC, it's only about crude. But why we had in the United States, we have shortages of electricity at that time. Why we had shortages of gasoline. Gasoline has nothing to do with the crude at that time. It, it was an, a refinery problems. Uh, so the bottom line is, no, we are not going to see another embargo. All right, great run through there, Dr. Anas. Uh, it doesn't look like we have any more questions. Um, so as Dr. Anas mentioned, there are, are a few uh, of his spaces that, that we've done in the past on my YouTube um, you can find that in the link in my bio and there's, you know, I think like three or four different spaces that we've done over, over the, the time period, uh, Dr. Anas and I, that I put up on my YouTube as well. I'll also put out the audio version of this, uh, just in case, uh, cause I know Twitter, uh, spaces recordings won't always all, uh, always be the best. Um, so yeah, uh, if we don't have any other questions, David, if you have one, uh, feel free to, to jump on in. I mean, it, it, one thing that I do have, and it's only on the giving conversation, what are the scenarios, especially given the geopolitical situation, right, that, that we would see oil embargoes, right? We would see more sanctions around oil and more restrictions. And then here, my caveat, that argument where, um, as you just stated, and I think that this is fairly clear, there's economic incentives to um, keeping oil at a certain inflationary parity, right? Because on, on a full supply chain level, it affects every global economy. And so by definition, there's a formal incentives in that sense to maintain this 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 price structure this this volatility within the oil market and so by definition um what are those two scenarios that you would see like one are we going to be able to maintain this level of let's say low volatility stable and, and and hopefully let's say more economically conducive oil market that would allow for a beneficial let's say prosperous economy and or two are we walking into more potentialities where the lower potential outcome of an actual oil embargo is coming into play. More oil sanctions are going to be coming into play, specifically within potentially OPEC, OPEC Plus, and the, the contention that we're finding there, and then the, the Russian development. So sorry for that. First of all, we have to uh, make a distinction between an oil embargo uh, by OPEC members for political reasons, which is the use of the oil weapon, and the sanctions by the United States and the EU. These are completely different things. And when it comes to oil sanctions, by the way, the number one in the world that used oil as a weapon more than anyone else is the United States of America. 
some Arab members historically used it three times. In 1956, during the uh, invasion that the Swiss crisis when the UK, France and Israel attacked Egypt. Uh, so Kuwait and Saudi Arabia did an embargo and it did not work. And then the uh, 1967 embargo and it did not work. And then the 1973 embargo and it did not work. Let's remember, and this is for uh, Bihar, uh, the young lady who asked the question, if she is more interested in the academic literature on this, uh, she is welcome to uh, search my name and the old weapon and she can get some papers on this. What was the objective of 1973 embargo? The declared objectives were two, that Israel retreat to the 1967 borders and the US and the European countries to stop supporting Israel militarily. They did not get any. The, the embargo ended and did not get any, period. So it failed. Unless there were some hidden objectives that we don't know about, which I think there were some hidden objectives and those hidden objectives were achieved. Uh, but the declared objectives never been achieved. And the whole literature of embargoes and sanctions for the last 120 years show that there is not a single embargo that achieved its objectives in terms of the, really the declared objectives. But they do inflict a lot of pain. And that pain is inflicted on both sides and it's not only one-sided. So both sides suffer because of that. But they never worked. If you look at the sanctions on Russia, where Russian oil, I mean, this is one of the biggest failures for those who are in the oil business. You already know, we have people who predicted including the IEA, uh, who predicted that uh, we will see a major decline up to 3 million barrels a day in Russian exports. That did not happen. So where are the sanctions? So sanctions always, they don't, they don't work. But countries impose them for their symbolic value. And the targeted country accepts the pain because once you are against a country and you impose sanctions on it, you are imposing sanctions on everyone, even those who are against the regime in that country. And that forces people to rally around the flag so they can handle a higher threshold of pain. And therefore, they are not affected. That's why the Cuba regime still exists until today. That's why the Maduro regime basically still exists until today. Sanctions don't work. We have sanctions on Syria for a long time. Bashar al-Assad is still in power, despite the fact that he killed millions of people. Back to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Anas. I do see that Jim came back and re-requested, and I would assume it's in relation to this current uh, question. So, Jim, the floor is yours for the second question. Thanks very much, David. I don't really have a question. I kind of thought Brandon said the questions were over. I just had a comment that Dr. Anas talked briefly on that May crude oil futures contract going negative. I'm a futures broker, and I would like to give everybody listening in the room this little bit of advice. Do not ever, ever, ever stay long or short into delivery period on something that you can't make delivery on or take delivery on 
Now you can make delivery and take delivery on gold or silver, but your city is not gonna let you take delivery of crude oil or gasoline or heating oil. You would fill swimming pools. One contract is 42,000 gallons and the normal swimming pool is like about eight to 15,000 gallons. So you'd need yours and neighbor's swimming pools. I'm being facetious, but those, that negative uh, instance that uh, the May crude oil went was because people stayed long into a contract that was expiring the next day and that contract went negative. And some platforms that I uh, remember reading about some online trading, you know, discount brokerage trading platforms didn't register negative numbers. People had no idea that their margin calls. So were piling I, Jim, up. Jim, to that point, I will say there is a Canadian institution in particular with several clients that did exactly that in March and of May of 2020, when oil and nickel went negative back backdated, and they've had formal cases on them. Because again, a lot of brokerages, as you've just stated, did not illustrate these price skews appropriately. And um, they've been so, some of them, right, hopefully, if, if ever you were affected, that there was some uh, appropriate prosecutions and, and associations to that. Yeah, I, I'm not, I don't care about legality or prosecutions or anything like that, David. I'm just trying to warn everybody in the room, please roll forward or get out when first notice day comes. Actually, ahead one day ahead of first notice day. For gold and silver, first notice day is Thursday of this week for the December contracts. But you can take delivery of silver. You can take delivery of gold. Gold is a one 100-ounce bar contract, and silver is a five 1,000-ounce bar contract. Nobody's going to get mad if you take delivery of that, if you can afford it. But, but people in the room that are not commercials cannot either make or take delivery of oil. So please, when uh, first notice day comes up in gasoline, in crude oil, and in heating oil, number two, uh, please roll or get out. And uh, don't let anybody's broker talk you into staying long into first notice day or into delivery period. Just roll to the next contract. It's very easy. Your broker can help you. If you're trading online and you don't understand it, uh, direct message me and I'll help you go through it. It's not that big a deal, but please do not be long in energy products into delivery period. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. All right. Thanks for that, Jim. I do see we have one more potential question here from William. Hey, William, welcome to the stage. Um, what you got for us? Just real quick question. And Dr. Ness, thank you for affording all your time on this stage. It's obviously really appreciated by everybody and you've got a lot of things to do. Looking forward to hearing from you next year when you come up here to Calgary to uh, talk. Anyways, real quick question for you. And it really relates to the current pricing mechanisms in your view in terms of OPEX being pretty good at defending a price, but is there a point when you think that they may just sort of throw up their hands and say, you know what, forget it, this market needs to die and we've got the resiliency to get through it versus continuing to sort of add incremental cuts to the market to sort of set a base to the price? 
Thanks, William. Uh, I'll be in Calgary in January, so hopefully I'll see yes, you there. Yes, at the Peters again. Conference, so I'll be good. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, we uh, Earlier in the uh, space, we talked about the conditions for a price war. And it is very clear from the examples that we mentioned that you need to have a major surplus. A major surplus, for example, we mentioned in the uh, mid-80s, we have 5.5 million barrels of additional supplies coming to the market while demand declined by 7 million. Uh, at the same time, you have OPEC members who are refusing to cut. Uh, we have uh, similar problems in 2015. We have a slightly different problem in March 2020, but the same idea. Uh, and the bottom line of all of those is what I mentioned uh, that the Saudi prince, the energy minister said, uh, when the house is on fire, do you bring the garden hose or do you call the fire department? So if they see if a need for the fire department and the others are preventing them from doing so, then they will crash the market. So they give up there. It is clear that they try to defend 90 several times. <coughs> Excuse me. They try to defend 90 several times and they did for a short period, uh, and then they looked into, okay, the 80s, etc. Uh, but people have to realize one thing about the Saudi behavior. I mean, definitely all the academic research that we've seen and we worked on showed that the Saudis had market power uh, while OPEC doesn't. I mean, simply people uh, kind of assigned the Saudi power to OPEC. Uh, but the idea uh, here is that the Saudi price is the average price for the month. And therefore, uh, our friends on Twitter, when prices decline by $5 in one day and say, why the Saudis are not reacting? Well, because their prices are not a function of that day. Their price is a function of the average of the whole month. So th this is one of the issues when we talk about the possibility of a price war or prices are not good or they are defending 90 or lower price, we should look at the average of the whole month. That's what the Saudis are getting instead of the daily prices. Back to you. Great. Thank you very much for the time. Appreciate You're it. Welcome. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Arnas. Uh, I will uh, let you... Uh, explain your sub stack uh we're we've been ripping and rolling here for an hour and a half so everybody should check out dr nas's sub stack we got his two articles pinned at the top but uh dr nas if you want to kind of explain the differences yes uh, feel free uh first of all for the new uh, for the new people in this space uh i tweet a lot of things in arabic uh, there is the main plat energy platform in arabic called ataha which means energy uh, uh, they they do amazing stuff, and I retweet their stuff. So just to show you, in the last 10 days alone, they published exclusive articles for the Egyptian energy minister, for the Egyptian environmental minister, for the Moroccan energy minister, an interview with the Jordanian energy minister, 
um, an interview and comments by the head of AWAPIC, not OPEC, AWAPIC, that's the Arab oil producing countries, that's a completely different organization. Uh, they had an article published by the head of ENOC, uh, which is a UAE oil company. Uh, and they had an article published by the head of Aquapower, which is the one of the largest um, renewable energy companies in the world. Uh, so a lot of really heavy, good stuff are being published there in Arabic, and people should realize that there is really high quality materials in Arabic, and I retweet that. Don't ignore that. Twitter has a function that has it has a translate function. So if you just click on the tweet itself, you look at the bottom left, you see translate. Just click on it. If the subject is of interest, then you can go to the link and then uh, uh, switch in your browser, switch the language and read it. Uh, and the translation these days are really good. So that's number one. As for the Substack, we do have two services. We have the uh, Energy Outlook Advisors newsletter, and that's intended mostly for companies. Uh, and we have in-depth uh, reports. And then we have the Daily Energy Report. The Daily Energy Report is unique in, 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 in its content because it focuses on news items and kind of try to explain those new news items within a certain perspective, because there is a lot of news out there and many people do not know what the impact of this news is. Uh, so there are two services. The Daily Energy Report is for $420 a year, and for the uh, EOE, EOA uh, newsletter is $4,000 uh, a year. Again, it is intended for the, uh, for the companies. Uh, and for anyone who would like uh, to kind of uh, access or test drive, uh, just contact me. And uh, usually we are very generous with these things. So I'll, I'll try to help you out uh, so you can have an idea. And for those who cannot afford any of that and you are looking for a certain article, just uh, contact me and I will send it to you for free. Back to you. All right. Yeah, definitely uh, give the old green candle stamp of approval to the Substack. Dr. Nas is providing some excellent, excellent research. So be sure to check him out. And if you're not already, give him a follow. And uh, yeah, Dr. Nas and David, thank you so much for your time tonight. And thank you, everybody, for your questions. And by the way, uh, Green Can Candle basically uh, conducts all kinds of interviews with very interesting people in the industry. So please follow him and follow his YouTube channel because there are a lot of good things there. Uh, uh, thank you, Brandon, and thank you, David. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Have a good one. Have a wonderful evening, gentlemen. Thank you, Dr. Ines, once again.